Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. If you haven't been with us here before, we're working through the book of Exodus, uh, verse by verse, chapter through chapter, and we've gotten to the Red Sea, very famous uh, portrayal uh, in the Bible of what God did for the people of Israel. They get to the Red Sea, the Egyptians are behind them, they have nowhere to go, and then at the last minute, God miraculously splits the Red Sea, and they walk through the middle of it. Egyptians weren't so lucky. God closes the over them. So in the last week, we talked about that story. This week, it's the musical. So if last week was the uh, historical account, this is the musical account. And it's the same story, but in song. So it talks about what God did for the people of Israel in a uh, song format. So read with me, we'll read verses 1 through 21. Exodus 15, 1 through 21. And the Bible says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his armies he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy into pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord to the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel were on dry land in the midst of the sea. <clears throat> then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. It's a very different passage from last week. Same story, different format. And one of the things about preaching through verse by verse is you get to see the variety in the Bible. It's not all one thing. It's not all just... Theological propositions. 
their stories, and their songs. Singing is a vital part of the Bible. In fact, there are whole books given to song. The book of Psalms, 150 chapters of songs. The book Song of Solomon is a long, uh, it's a book full, it's just one song. There are hundreds of times that the Bible talks about singing. You can't take singing out of the Bible. And so for us, for us, when we worship God, we understand what it means to be a Christian. Singing is a necessary part of that. It's not optional. The Bible shows us that it is a necessary, vital part of being in a relationship with God. So then the question is, what does the Bible say about singing? If it's so important, how do we do it? What does it mean? What's the biblical model for singing? Here we're going to see the first song in the Bible, Song of Moses. And in it we're going to see God's people respond to his work and his person with singing. That's what happens here. God's people respond to who he is and what he's done in song. So, first thing, God's people sing. That's what the passage is. And Moses and the children of Israel sang the song to the Lord. Why? Why did they sing? Why does anybody sing? But specifically, why they sing, and, and the bigger question is, why, is, why do we sing? They said, I will sing to the Lord, and it gives you the answer, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Remember what happened. Egypt is going to either kill them or re-enslave them. They have two choices. They can go into the sea and drown, or they can go back to Egypt or be killed by Egyptians. Then God said, no, we're going to knock... That's not going to happen. I'm going to open the sea for you and then kill the Egyptians. So they were saved. Came out on the other side, a free people. And so they responded by singing the song. They responded to salvation. Why do you sing? Because God saved you. This is exactly why they sang. They didn't sing before God saved them, whether they should have or not. They didn't. It was a response to what God had done for them. God says, I'll save you, then you sing. It wasn't contrived. It wasn't like, okay, it's time for the singing. It was a natural response. In Revelation chapter 15, so this is the first song in the Bible. Revelation chapter 15, you have the last song in the Bible. We read it earlier. Guess what it does? This is how the Bible is uniform. It's one giant story. So at the beginning, you have Exodus, you have the Song of Moses. Then you go to Revelation chapter 15, it's in your bulletin, since we read, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had victory, just like the Israelites, over the beast, over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, imagine the, Egypt, the Israelites standing next to the sea, the Red Sea, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses. Wait, wait, Revelation, we believe, hasn't happened yet. From what we can tell, Revelation's in the future. Why are they still singing the song of Moses? It's been 3,500 years since Moses was around. Yet in the future, they're still singing. It says, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Why are they singing the song of Moses? Because they've been saved by the same God. God saved the Israelites, and they sang to him. God saved these people, and they sang to him. So you got the beginning and the end. This is how Christianity exists. This is how religion, true religion exists. God saves, 
we sing. Moses did it, and the people at the end will do it. And everything in between is a response. When Hannah was given a baby, what did she do? She sang. When Mary got pregnant, what did she do? She sang. In a way, it's very similar to the Song of Moses. David is liberated from his enemies. He sings. Christians come to church liberated from sin, and we sing. Salvation is the reason you sing. Isaiah 40, 1 through 3 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He saved us. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. If you want a different version, you can listen to you 2 We do a version of this called 40. It's good. God brings up David out of the miry pit, or brings up Isaiah out of the miry pit, and then God puts a new song in his mouth. What's the new song? God saved me. I have to say something. I have to sing. I have to praise God. Now, why singing, though? Can't we just say, God is great, God has saved us, we're thankful, we rejoice in that, right? Why is singing explicitly required? I was reading about a guy who started a church, and singing can be controversial. If you didn't know that, styles of music can cause fights. Uh, So he decided not to have any music in the beginning so that they could sort of ease their way into it without without difficulty, and just focus on the Word, which sounds like a good idea. The problem is it's not biblical. See, we are Word-centered, but the Word can exist in song. But why does it need to be? Here's why. When the the Israelites were in the desert, they were there physically. They were there emotionally. Emotionally. And when they saw the Egyptians coming up to kill them, what was their reaction? Have you ever had somebody try to kill you? Multiple things happen to you. Your body goes through changes. You physically change in the face of fear. Uh, knees shake. Have you ever got up in front of people to speak? It's a little similar. In fact, one of the greatest fears is dying and speaking in front of people. I don't know what the correlation is, but it's there. Your knees start shaking, you get weak, your hands feel funny, you start sweating, you feel flushed, you're short of breath, your mouth gets dry, your your body seems to be shutting down a little bit. But then your heart rate goes up, and you get really intense. So your body stops working, but it gets ramped up. Your emotions. It says when they saw the Egyptians, they were greatly afraid. Fear is an emotion. It's something you feel. And they also knew that if the Egyptians got to them, what was going to happen? They were going to die. So when they get through the Red Sea and they come out on the other side, what has been saved? All of those things. Their minds were saved, sure, and so they spoke, but their bodies were saved. Their emotions were saved. So the natural response to a full-bodied salvation is a full-bodied response. Singing does that. It engages your entire body. You sing with your lungs. You form words with your mouth. Your emotions are engaged. That's why music can be so controversial, because you feel the music. God meant for that to be. You say, God didn't just save my mind, so I believe true things. He saved my body. Which is why, at the end of this, it says, Miriam the prophetess 
And the sister of Aaron took timbrels in her hand, but all the women went out with her with timbrels and with dances. I know we're at Baptist and dancing's wrong, but, but apparently the Bible doesn't think so. So I don't know how we're going to work that out. Now, of course, this is the Old Testament. This is not telling us how to have a worship service. It's telling us what people who were saved did. They said, our bodies have been saved. We're going to express our praise and thankfulness to God with our bodies. Song and dance. Now, just because some people have corrupted those things doesn't mean they weren't good or are not still good. And so what they do here is they say, God has saved our whole body, so we're going to respond. So when you come in here and you sing, you sing standing up. Why? Is it biblical? No, the Bible doesn't say you have to sing standing up. It's our way of saying we want to engage physically in the service. This is why you need to be here to sing. You need to physically be here. You need your whole person here. You need to think about what the words mean. You need to feel the words. You need to physically, if you want to raise your hand, go for it. I know we're Baptists and we don't really do that kind of stuff. But God saved your hands too. And if you want to express worship with them, it's okay. So praising God and with song is necessary. And if you take music out of Christianity, you've devalued it. That's what he's saying here. Their whole body was saved. And so their whole body praised God. But how do you sing? Okay, we know why we sing, but how? How is the music supposed to work? How the word, what songs do we sing? So he tells us here in this passage and in Revelation. How do we sing? It says, And the Moses the children of Israel sang the songs to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Verse 2, The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. See what's happening there? First-person pronouns. Individual singing. It's personal. It's actually my next point. It's personal. You don't sing as an undistinguished mass of people. You sing as an individual person who believes what you're singing. If you don't believe it, they sang it because they said, I've been saved. He is my God. He's not just my Father's God. So he says, my Father's God, yes, but also my God. That's relevant in America because many of us have grown up in Christian homes or in Christian culture, are familiar with religion. That doesn't matter unless it's yours. So singing says, how do you sing? You sing personally your heart to God. You say, this is my song. It's not the church's song. It's my song. It's not my parents' song. It's not those people. It's my song. A personal song. Why? Because you've been personally saved. You see, you can only sing personally if something has happened to you. Sometimes we sing songs about what happens to other people, sort of historical songs. That's fine. But when it's happened to you personally, you sing a personal song. Now, if you haven't been saved personally, you have nothing to sing about. You can sing about tradition and culture and you like the cultural things and historical things, but you can't say, my God, my salvation. But when you can, it's different. It says, I'm here. This is for me. This is from God. This is not for everybody. This is for me personally. And so a personal relationship. 
You've been saved personally, and so you sing personally, and that's what they did here. They were all saved, but they were all saved individually. And so they sang back to God. But it's not by yourself. It's personal, but it's not isolated. So it says, this, this, then Moses, now we would expect, it's called the Song of Moses, and Moses is sort of the one who led them, but it wasn't just him singing. It says, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They all sang together. Every one of them. We call this corporate worship. Corporate worship is everyone singing as one body with the same voice, with the same song, coordinated, harmonies, all those sorts of things, but it's all together. Look in verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand. All the women went out with, uh, after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them. Answered who? Well, in a patriarchal society, you don't have to ask that question. At this time, the men. Everyone knows that the men represent, right? The men stand before God for the family. The men worship. The men lead. The men, rep- the men are the family. So, of course, they sang the worship song. And then God says, yes, but then I want the women to sing too. Why? Well, they were saved. The, it wasn't the men were saved and the women went around the ocean. The men were saved and the women were saved with them. So if the women were saved, then what should the women do? They should sing. And so that's exactly what they did. The, the women went out and Miriam answered them. So it seems to be sort of a responsive singing. Um, you ever, you know the song sometimes we sing where the men sing one verse and then the women respond? I can't remember the song now. What is it? I can't remember. Yeah, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. So in the chorus, you have a men's part and a women's part, and they sort of go back and forth. That's what's happening here. He, she, Miriam answered them, sing to the Lord for his triumph gloriously. It's the same as the other part. It seems like the women sang the song back to them, the whole song, in whatever format they did it. What's, what's the Bible saying? Everybody needs to sing. Men need to sing. Women need to sing. Everyone who was saved sings. And who went through the water? Everybody. There cannot be a patriarchal Christianity. It doesn't exist. Because God didn't save men and then women followed after. No, he saved everybody equally. And so everybody sings equally. That's why when we sing, we all sing. We sing together. And if we want to have harmony uh, parts and, and responsive singing, that's great. But as long as everybody's singing. It sends the message that everyone was saved together, and so everyone sings together. All who are saved sing. Remember Revelation? It says, they sing the song of Moses. Why? Because they were saved. Meredith says, everyone was singing, men, women, children, because everyone had been rescued. If you're not singing, you're telling people you weren't rescued. You're like, well, I just don't feel like singing. You're still saying something. You're saying, I can't sing the song of redemption because I haven't been redeemed. I can't sing the song of salvation because I haven't been saved. Now, you may react, but I have been saved. Great. Now sing. So we sing together. But then we notice, how do we sing? It's content-rich. You ever think this, man, like some songs, like, man, there's all, like, um, a mighty fortress is our God? A lot of words there, isn't it? There's no chorus. Look at this song. It's just one long 
extended verse. There's no chorus. Why? Because what you say is important. You can't just sing. You have to say something because God did something. And so in this song, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of important words being said. Things about who God is and what he's done, they're being said. And so our songs need to be the same way. The Song of Moses says something. It's content rich. The words matter. In fact, what we see here is the lyrics of the song. What we don't see is the music of the song. And that's the whole Bible. We don't know what it sounded like, but we do know what they said. That's a model. What does God emphasize in the Bible? What you say. Does not say how to say it. What format the music should be in. It says, have music and sing important words. And that's hard for some of us to hear because we've been for so long have been told that the kind of music is more important than the words, or at least equally. That's not what's happening here. It doesn't tell you what kind of music they were singing. It probably doesn't sound like anything we sing, though. But we don't know. God could have told us, but he didn't. So it shows us that when you look at a song, the first thing you should be looking at is, does it express what I believe? Not generically. This is not a generic song. I want a specific detailed song of what God has done. I want to sing those words. So that's what we're looking for. But then ultimately, this song and how we sing all songs is not about us. It's about God. It starts out with, I will sing and my Father, my God, but it really gets away from all of that pretty quickly, within a few verses. It starts talking about what God has done, who God is, what he's going to do in the future. Worship music that talks about people too much is not good worship music. We want worship music that talks about God. That can be what God does for us, but the, the focus is on God. So we're deciding what songs to sing. Let's put the style of music on the back burner and put the focus of the song, of the words, on the front, like the Bible does. Is it singing about God? Is it God-centered? Not what Israel has done but what God has done. When we look at it in Revelation, it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And in the song of Moses, Moses is never mentioned. Who's mentioned? Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, O King of the saints. Who shall fear you, O Lord, glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. See the focus? Is that the focus of our songs? If it's not, they're not biblical. They're, they're losing the biblical focus. They're, they're missing the biblical model. So if it's going to be God-centered, what should the words talk about? Well, this shows us. It talks about two things, God's actions and God's person, who he is and what he did. So what did God do for them? When they said, Moses said, I think Moses probably wrote this song, He's going to go pin the lyrics for the whole country, nation to sing. He says, what do I got to write about? Well, this was easy, wasn't it? There's dead Egyptians on the seashore. What am I going to write about? He's going to write about what God did. And so he writes about what happened in the past. God destroyed the Egyptians. In verse 1, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 4, the Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea. He's specifically saying God has done certain historical events. 
and I want to respond to those. I want to remind us about these. The Song of Moses will be sung in the future, which means it's been remembered this whole time. It was repeated. It was used as a teaching tool. So he talks about what God has done. In the past, he killed the Egyptians. That happened. It's not a metaphor. It's not a myth, unless you think it's a true myth. He destroyed the Egyptians, and he saved Israel. Thomas More put this into poetic form. Sound the timbrel over Egypt's dark sea. Jehovah has triumphed. His people are free. Sing, for the pride of the tyrant is broken. His chariots and his horsemen, all splendid and brave. How vain was their boast. For the Lord hath but spoken, and the chariots and the horsemen are sunk in the wave. Sound the timbrel over Egypt's dark sea. Jehovah has triumphed. His people are free. The Bible is a historical book. And historical events happened, and our songs should talk about them. Moses talked about them. The future will talk about them. It says in Revelation that praise him for his wondrous, great and marvelous are your works. Things you've done, historical things you've done. Past salvation prompts songs. Has God historically done anything for us? You see, we don't just sing the song of Moses. We sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb, why does it say the song of God, the song of Christ, the song of Jesus? Why does it say the song of the Lamb? Because it's a historical song. And Christ didn't just exist as Christ. He existed as Christ who died for us, who suffered like a lamb. We know what happened to the lamb in Passover. Their throat was slit, and they bled out everywhere, and they let the kids watch it. And they said, this is what it takes. So when we sing the song of the Lamb, we better talk about Christ bleeding and dying at a certain time and place. It happened. It's historical. If you lose the historical basis for what happened here, you lose the song. Take the history out of the song of Moses, and what do you have? Not very much. Take the history out of our, our songs, you'll have nothing. It's not just about feelings. It's about what has happened in the past. But it's also about what happened in the future. In verse 14, he says, The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. You see, Israel is leaving the Red Sea, and they're going to go conquer the land of Canaan. And this song is saying, we're not really going to do much. God's already prepared them for us. And we know when we get to like Jericho, the people had heard about them. And that was 40 years later. God's going to, in the future, prepare the land so that Israel could conquer it. Israel was not a very good fighting force. And so God made a way for them to do it. He says he will, he will cause the chiefs of Edom to be dismayed, the mighty men of Moab. He's going to, in the future, conquer them. So the song is about what God will do. Nothing's changed for us. God has saved us on the cross, and he will save us when he comes back. So we sing about what he will do in the same way that we sing about what he has done. Faith says there's no difference. Just as certain as he died 2,000 years ago, he will come back. And so in our songs, we speak about them on the same terms. Faith says the future is as, as certain as the past is. It says that God will bring them to his home. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, of the Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. See how this is God-centered? We think of Israel as the land for Israel or of Israel, but it wasn't. It was God's land. But he said, you can stay here. I've got my own land, my inheritance, my holy mountain, 
but I'm going to bring you to it so you can live there with me. That's the story of the gospel. God says, I've got a home in heaven, which is perfect, so I'm going to come down and get you and bring you up there so you can live with me. That's what we sing about. God wants to be with us, so he made every arrangement, not to give us heaven, but to bring us to heaven. Our song should sing about that. And then he's going to reign forever. Look at the last words. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. This is not just a story about something that happened in the past. You see, what this story is about, it's a cosmic story. Now, we don't use that word very much because most of the time we're bogged down with day-to-day stuff that all we can think about is tomorrow. All we can think about is the things we need to take care of today. This story is saying, take a step back. There's a bigger story here than just how God helps you through work. It's bigger than just God helping you raise your kids or deal with sickness. It says, lift your eyes up and see that there's a universal, eternal plan being worked out in individual lives. And I don't mean that metaphorically. Look in verse 5. The depths have covered them. Pretty normal, right? They fell in the sea. Of course the depths covered them. Here's the thing. That word depths doesn't just mean water. It's a, it's a, uh, a synonym for chaos. For the sea, have you ever been in the ocean? I'm not talking about the beach. I'm talking about the real ocean. It's scary out there. It's really scary. You fall into the ocean, you're at the will of the ocean. You're not hitting the bottom, and if a storm kicks up, it's the end. The ocean is pure chaos. You can't control it. You can't order the waves. And so people have always been afraid of the ocean for that reason. The Bible's no different. So when it says the depths here, it's referring to a word in the Hebrew that, that refers like a primordial chaos that God ordered in Genesis 1. Remember, he says he, he was over the waters. He shaped them. But it goes more than that. In Isaiah chapter 51, in verse 9 to 11, Isaiah says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Does that sound familiar? That's, that's the story we're talking about. So the ransom of the Lord, the redeemed of the Lord, shall return and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy in their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. He's referring back to Egypt. And some of you are singing that in your head right now. But look at the context. It says, are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? The Red Sea. He split the water and they walked through it. But look what he says before that. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart? and wounded the serpent. Now, that's not talking about Rahab, Jericho, no. The word Rahab is an ancient mythological creature. Sea monster, it's called a serpent here. It lived in the sea, and it controlled the sea. And all the ancient mythologies had a battle between the creator god and Rahab, Tam, Tamiel, all these different words. And the creator God had to conquer this ocean God before it could move forward. That's not in the Bible. That's just ancient mythology. But Rahab is the Jewish name for that. What's he saying here? When God, in Exodus 15, it says, the depths have covered them, they sank to the bottom like a stone. It's drawing from mythology that said that there's a chaotic creature 
that's trying to pull the world apart. And the creator God needs to defeat it. And he did. You see how big that story is? It's not just about a few people making it through the water. It's not about you getting through your day. It's about God defeating chaos. That's what the Bible is saying here. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? You ever confront chaos in your life? You ever see chaos? You ever see things falling apart in the world? I'm not talking about in your life or finance. I'm talking about big things like Baltimore City. Number one murder capital in America. That's chaos. That's big chaos. That's chaos when you go into the city. You can't handle it. You, You can't comprehend it. You don't know what to do as you pass row and row and row of houses that are boarded up. Have you seen the heroin epidemic in in our county? You can't control that. It's too big for us. No one knows what to do with it. That's chaos. This is saying God controls that. God defeated the deeps. Look at the story of God going up against it. It says here, the Lord is a man of war. He's a divine warrior. He's not grandfather up in heaven. He's got a sword and armor, and he's going to war. And he's fighting this ancient beast, this ancient creature that tears everything apart. You see it in the book of Revelation. Satan, the dragon, death itself, the ultimate chaos, the ultimate unraveling of everything, including your body as it disintegrates. Your life ends. It goes into nothing. Your body goes into nothing your influence in this world, what does God do? He goes up against it. He did it here in Exodus, and he's saying, sing about this event. Sing about what God, the warrior king, is doing. He's not just there to get you through your workday. He's not just there to get you through your sickness. He's taking on everything. He's taking on the chaos in this world. And this song, it says, and he'll win. Ultimately, he'll win against everything. There will be perfect peace and order. You see, that's why it says the Lord shall reign forever and ever. If you want perfect peace, you need someone who's going to make sure it's always peaceful. You need a warrior, but you also need a king. See, a warrior defeats it, but a king makes sure it stays defeated. How many times does a king die and things get bad afterwards? During the reign of that king, he had things in order, but then he died and his son came and it was terrible. You don't need to make too many applications there. You get it. So it says, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. This king will come down and set things right, and then he'll stay there. And he won't leave. Forever. That's the song we're singing. That's what Christianity sings about. That's what gets your emotions engaged. You can look at the world and say, that's terrible, but then you sing about God making it right. And all this shows what God has done, but also shows who God is. We can't get to God, can we? So God comes to us. We can't understand God, so God does things that show us who he is. So when we sing, we sing that he's a powerful warrior. It's good versus evil. You know why we love stories about good versus evil? Because God told the first one. God is the ultimate good versus evil. There is real evil in this world, and it's terrible, but there's also good, and it's better. That's why we love the Bible. That's why we should love the Bible. Because it's the story of good versus evil. God is good. Everything else is evil. And God wins. And we sing about that.
God defeats his enemies. Let's get real personal here. Look at verse 7. In the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. We like to see this as Israel versus the Egyptians, and God saves Israel. No. It's Egypt against God, and God picks a few Israelites to come with him. Israel, are, they all die in the desert. You know that? They die just like the Egyptians because they were just like the Egyptians. The Egyptian says, I don't believe in God. And so God drowned them all in the sea. The Israelites did the same thing. They said, God, we don't believe you either. And God said, fine, you'll die in the desert. So this is not God, this is not Israel versus Egypt. It's not uh, Israel going into Canaan and defeating its enemies. It's God versus enemies. And Israel gets to come along for the ride. That's still the case today. It's not Christians versus the world. It's not us versus Satan. It's God versus evil. How does that apply to us? So often we see the enemy as those who oppose us. That's wrong. It's those who oppose God. So we like to divide things up into political parties. This is the party that does things wrong. They're against God. This is the culture that is unbiblical. They're against God. No. We just don't like what they're doing. And we think they're wrong. We can't imagine voting for him. No Christian would do that. Or, or no one would vote for her if you're a Christian. Right? No. Anyone who stands against God is God's enemy. And anyone who stands with God is God's friend. And whatever letter you have after your polling card doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's only one way to be on God's side. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ. And there's only one way to be on God's enemies. Don't do that. And all the other stuff that we divide the world into is irrelevant. So when we look at people and say, they're, uh, they're wicked, they're our enemies, no. We don't know who our enemies are unless they say, I reject God. It makes it simple, doesn't it? Suddenly politics aren't that big of a deal anymore. Because you can be of a different political party and still say, I repent of my sins and trust Christ. Which means the party doesn't matter anymore for Christians. So when we sing songs, what do we sing songs about? The gospel. We don't sing songs about America. I know that's different, but if you notice the new hymn books, there's no patriotic songs in there. Why? Because America's not in the Bible. It's not in there. Republicans, Democrats aren't in the Bible. Conservative, liberals not in the Bible. Culture is not in the Bible. What's in the Bible are those who believe in Christ and those who don't. So we sing about those things. And all this stuff we have opinions about, have those opinions. Great. When we come together as a church, we don't talk about those things. We talk about the thing that binds us together with God, Christ's work for us. Moses doesn't sing about the Egyptian culture here. He doesn't sing about how the old Pharaoh was good and the new Pharaoh is bad, does he? He sings about what God has done for them. That's what we should be singing about. And what that's going to do is it's going to train us. If all you ever do is sing about certain things, it's going to train you to think about those things. We want a unified church? Sing about things that unify us. Talk and sing about other things, and you'll divide the church. How do we do this? We look at what God has done for us. Look in verse 
13, you and your mercy have led forth the people who you have redeemed. The word mercy there, better translated faithful love or covenant love. It's the word chesed. It's, it's a very important word. It means the love that God has for those he's bound himself to. It's not just God has mercy on people, he doesn't kill them right away. No. This word, specifically in Hebrew, is referring to a bound love. Similar to a marriage love, but think of God. That's why we can get along with all the rest of the junk. Like God puts up with. Because there's a covenant love that God has bound himself to. So when we sing about God, we don't sing about how bad we are. We sing about how much God loves us. How he's bound himself to us. How he's the king overall. In Revelation chapter, in Revelation 15, it said, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O king of the saints. All the nations shall come and worship before you. You're over all. We sing about God who is sovereign. And now tomorrow when things are tough, just sing that same song again. And what's going to happen? You're like, oh, there's some perspective. God fighting and defeating the world puts my job into perspective. God fighting and defeating the world puts my housework into perspective. You know when you get so overwhelmed you can't stand it? That's when you should be singing. Because singing changes you. We know this. Music changes you. It changes your moods, changes your behavior, changes your attitudes. That's why we use it. So you may need to choose your music appropriately. Struggling with anger, choose music that's either going to direct that anger in the right way or get rid of it. Struggling with depression, find songs that are going to put that depression into perspective. And the, the book of Psalms has all of that stuff. It tells you how to be angry. It tells you how to be depressed. It tells you how to be happy. Songs change who you are. But you have to sing about big stuff. You can't sing about little stuff. That won't last. Singing is a natural part of the Christian life. If you can't sing or you don't sing, you're either not saved or you forgot that you were saved. And if you're not saved... You got nothing to sing about. And every song that you sing as an unbeliever is a distraction from reality. It's distracting you from the reality that you are chaos and God will get rid of you. But if you are a believer, you have trusted Christ, every song should be about reminding you that everything is going to be okay, that Christ has done everything for you, and that he's going to do everything for you in the future, and you're going to come out in his house. That's what singing does. Some of you here may not be saved. Don't sing the next song we sing about redemption unless you believe it. But every time you sing, it's an opportunity to believe it again. Struggling with these things, you're not singing enough. You're not paying attention while you sing. Want to sing better? You come to church, you're like, I want to sing, but I just can't get into it. Look at what God has done. The, the song will tell you. You don't need to come up with the words. The song, the God will, the song will tell you what God has done. See the massive victory over everything, sin in your life, in the world. See what Christ has done to save you. If you look at Christ, you'll want to sing. If you look at what Christ has done for you, you want to sing. And if you don't want to sing, it's because you haven't looked at Christ. That's what the song of Moses and the Lamb is. Look at what Christ has done, sing about it. Let's pray.